That was Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9. Welcome once again to tonight's show. It is Sunday, March 27th, and we're now a month into this terrible war in Ukraine. I'm Dmitry Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C. Tonight, I'm joined once again by Michael Kaufman, an expert on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies program at the Center for Naval Analysis. We're also glad to have with with us today my good friend, Chris Krebs, co-founder of the cybersecurity consulting firm, Krebs Stamos Group, and of course, former founding director of CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We'll get to Mike and the substantial developments that we've seen this week in the war in a bit, but I want to first turn to Chris. Chris, first of all, I want to express my deep gratitude to Emily Krebs, who is definitely your much better half, for lending you to us tonight for a few minutes because I know it's her birthday and we all wish her the most happiest of birthdays. I also hope the Room Raider team is not listening tonight since they may ding your point or two in the future if they hear you're missing your chief sets designer's uh, birthday uh, to do a Twitter space. But uh, in all seriousness, uh, let's turn to you because we had a remarkable announcement from the President of the United States on Monday warning the country that the Russians may indeed be uh, interested in targeting our critical infrastructure sector through cyber attacks. And uh, I personally have never seen an announcement like this from the President of the United States before on a cyber issue. And uh, of course, we've been expecting uh, the Russians to retaliate for these major sanctions and and the economic pain that they're suffering. I've been thinking that they might uh, attack energy sector and financial sector as well, potentially in both Europe and the United States to try to divide the alliance, to try to uh, inflict pain uh, on the economies of both continents and uh, try to cause political pain for President Biden and other European leaders. But you're working a lot right now with companies uh, that have gotten these warnings, that have heard from Jen Easterly, the the current director of CISA, uh, about what they should be doing. Tell us a little bit about the types of conversations you're having and what you're advising your clients right now. Hey, uh, thanks, Dimitri, for having me on. And and yes, Friday when you called me, I clearly was still in spring break mode down in Mexico. And when I accepted, not remembering at the time that Sunday was, uh, in fact, Emily's birthday. So I think think this was a notable week for three reasons. First, as you pointed out, uh, President Biden's announcement about um, a potential upcoming cyber activity due to evolving intelligence. The second was the uh, the Viasat, you know, additional information on Viasat. And third is the indictments of uh, Russian hackers for, you know, the 2017 through 2018-19 energy sector related activity. So back to, uh, you know, your, your original question, companies are asking two things right now uh, primarily first is for western or domestic operations you know what should they be thinking about who's in the crosshairs and like you and i have talked about for a while now there, there's kind of two two primary vectors to be thinking about first is are you on that potential list of down selected targets or target sectors that would make sense to uh, a russian actor and, and right now or at least a state actor and i think that would be pr- principally driven by prior activity or a tit for tat on uh, where the sanctions are hitting hardest. And so uh, prior activity is certainly energy sector. The Russians have been very interested for years in uh, U.S. energy sector activity. And, and that kind of points back to the prior indictments 
uh, from the fault or uh, unsealed this week. And then the second on the tit for tat where it's hitting them hardest is uh, in the uh, in part in the, the financial services sector. So a lot, it's a lot of financial services sector organizations that are concerned about uh, concerned about Russian activity. And then you know you think about defense industrial base and uh, along those and go, you know other government agencies. And 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 uh, there was a report of an FBI flash alert, TOP Amber, of course, but nonetheless found its hand found its way into the hands of. Uh, I think it was Sean Lingus at CNN, and he reported on that. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that's kind of the the primary concern target sets that we're hearing about. The second set of conversations that we're having is with organizations, and this is not a pure cyber play. It's more on sustaining or winding down operations in Russia. So Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, the professor at Yale uh, at Yale School of Management has this list. And the list right now is several hundred companies long, and it's divided into four different categories on a spectrum from have withdrawn entirely from Russia all the way down to our remaining operations in Russia. And that, that list is being maintained right now kind of as a, uh, a, a public sector or public source, open source tracker of organizations, uh, but it's also being operationalized by ESG groups, institutional investors, people that are uh, trying to lead almost... Uh, apartheid equivalent uh, boycotts of companies for remaining. But that the, the first three categories on that list are uh, in some way, shape or form, um, those companies are withdrawing operations. And there, there are certain IT operation considerations that go along with that process, both before you make an announcement and then after you make an announcement. And that includes backing up data, ensuring uh, that any IT assets that are left behind are properly you know, either secured, bricked, or otherwise restricted access uh, and limited only to those that operate in the state, uh, that remain in Russia. Um, so that's, that's a lot of the conversations that we're having. So it's not a pure cyber play. There is a good bit of insider risk piece there. Um, that fourth group, though, that's on the Sonnenfeld list, they are having an entirely different set of, of uh, conversations because they're potentially on a targeting list for anonymous um the 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 hacker or whatever we want to call them the collective that is going after uh companies that are remaining and, and we heard earlier this week that that they had dropped you know some large data set uh from nestle the the european uh confector uh confection company or whatever you want to call them so that you know there are a a number of different assets or operators out there that have a diverse set of considerations and risks um, and, the, and these organizations are trying to figure out what their exposure is. And then there's a kind of a final conversation and one that, that you and I have also had before. It's, I think a lot of organizations are kind of waking up and they're saying, well, we've heard for the longest time about the, the necessity of factoring in geopolitical risk to our IT operations and cybersecurity risk management operations. And, and a lot of companies have, kind of put it off and so they're 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 working overtime to figure out how to un uh, unwind russia and at the same time they're looking forward and they're saying well wait a second where are some other potential geopolitical flashpoints that we could be seeing up uh, pop up in the in the near future uh or or maybe even the midterm and, uh, and of course the, it, the the eyes immediately get drawn to china and and the taiwanese in the conflict with taiwan so that's a bit of a range of the, the discussions, at least we're having these days. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So let me jump in first on the indictments, because I thought they were fascinating. 
they indicted uh, this uh, Center for Scientific Research um, uh, Institute of Chemistry and Me Mechanics in Moscow, which is uh, sort of almost an equivalent of our FFRDCs, uh, federally funded research institutions like MITRE in Russia, works predominantly with the Ministry of Defense. And they were responsible for the so-called Triton attack uh, on uh, Saudi Arabian petroleum facility refinery uh, back in 2017. And what was uh, really interesting is that they targeted the safety systems made by Schneider Electric that is responsible from uh, preventing things from going boom effectively in a refinery, uh, looking at all the different industrial control processes that are taking place and making sure that if things get uh, out of hand, uh, that uh, it, it can initiate an emergency shutdown of refinery operations, and they specifically targeted that system uh, with their malicious code. And then we learned in the indictment that not only did they execute that attack in Saudi Arabia, but they were also targeting a variety of U.S. refineries uh, in 2018 after that uh, attack on Saudi Arabia, but they were unsuccessful in those attempts. So that, I think this gives us a little bit of a, of a view in what Russia is capable of on the industrial control system side, obviously, we've seen a lot of wiper attacks from them in uh, recent years, both against Ukraine and obviously attacks that have escaped Ukraine like NAPETIA. But this was a really remarkable um, attack that uh, could have caused loss of life uh, if, if that refinery uh, had been, um, uh, if the control processes in the, that refinery had, had gone out of uh, standard operating procedure. So, Chris, Again, like, let, let me ask you specifically, you work with a lot of companies right now. What are you telling them to do now? Uh, you know, I assume if they, if they haven't done anything before, it's probably too late uh, to, to start working on your security. But uh, if assuming that they've been paying attention to the Shields Up campaign from CISA, um, what else should they be doing given this warning, which, uh, you know, was not a specific warning, of course, from the president? And my understanding is that we don't have specific intelligence on what may be targeted. Well, through, through the, the consulting shop, uh, Krebs Domino's group, we, we actually had, we released two different, uh, we made it public, but two different alerts. First was, a, you know, what does Shields Up mean to a company that's trying to affect rapid change in a matter of hours or a couple of days? And we pushed that out a couple of weeks ago and it's, you know, it starts at the top, really trying to get the... Uh, the attention of, of executive leadership. And that's what I appreciate, frankly, about the way that, that Gene, Jen Easterly and the CISA team have been engaging publicly, uh, trying to not just uh, focus on the technical community. And this is a, in part what we started at CISA a few years ago is the you know, U.S. started been pushing out bulletins and situation alerts constantly. Uh, but what we were finding is that there was diminishing returns in part because uh, we, we hadn't kind of prep the battlefield at the leadership levels. So we made a bit of a change again a couple of years ago. So we started targeting more executive communications. And, and I, I see Jen continuing that in her outreach with CISA right now. We kind of took a similar model uh, at KSG and, and tried to put out both the technical uh, bits as well as the, the guidance for the executive leadership team and, and, and boards of directors. You know, If you have a board of directors, otherwise down, down the stack, smaller companies, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, unfortunately it's basics, it's basics like, you know, listen to your team, empower your team, uh, where some of those prior trade-offs, uh, we, when you make decisions are in favor of the business units or the line of business, let's tilt the, the benefit 
uh, the cost benefit balance back towards the security teams. Uh, and, you know, I know there's always risk in crash deploying uh, MFA or insider risk tools. Uh, but if you're going to do it, do it now um, and, and push a multi-factor package uh, as rapidly as you can across the organization, starting with those higher those VIP or administrative accounts. So that was the that was part of the the Shields Up campaign. Again, that's um, that's uh, that we've got that public for KSG. There's a second piece that we did that goes back to that conversation about what it looks like. What are the recommendations that it, that a company that's pulling out or making a business decision on on Russia? What does that look for look like? And it starts with you got to have your 24 hour shut, you know, controlled shutdown plan. Uh, and that, again, begins with, you know, cutting off access to any global accounts, um, uh, looking for any suspicious exfiltration, things like that, as, as well as a you may not have 24 hours. What happens when the FSB shows up at your door and nationalizes the company? You need the ability to set, a, you know, an unrevocable one hour shutdown plan and the critical aspect of all of this is that whatever you're doing as an organization you have to be making decisions in implementing the plan with this little operational involvement of the russian team as possible you don't want to implicate them down the road where they could have their own legal jeopardy uh, try to keep them as pure and clean as possible you know uh before i let you go chris i, I want to run this by you assuming that there are cyber attacks that take place and they cause some damage to our economy, some damage to our infrastructure. The key question for the president and his national security team will be, how do we respond? And how do we avoid escalation in that response? Uh, the worst thing that we can do is, is get into a tit for tat with Russia that uh, is, is gonna uh, be about who can destroy more of each other's critical infrastructure that doesn't serve anyone. And there's high degree of escalation that it gets out of the cyber domain and gets into a kinetic conflict that we also, for obvious reasons, want to avoid with Russia. And I've been thinking a lot about this. And my view, I want to get your thoughts on this, is that it is important to send a signal, but a signal that does not do significant damage, uh, at least permanent damage to Russia in cyberspace, uh, but shows what we're capable of and letting them know that they need to cut this out. Because I do think that their view is this is um, if they do launch these attacks, that this is a justified response to the choking off of the economy that we're engaged in right now. Uh, but we have to let them know that, no, this is not acceptable and we can do massive damage well, well beyond what we've done till now with sanctions and sort of unilateral pullback from Western companies. But uh, we, we have to send it as a warning signal as opposed to actually do it. So some of the ideas are like, uh, you know, turning off um, the internet in Russia for a few hours, uh, which wouldn't have lasting effects, but can show you what you can do um, through cyber attacks, uh, potentially denial of service attacks against core routers and things of that nature. I uh, want to get you a quick reaction to that. I know we have to run uh, to, to do a birthday dinner with Emily, but um, any thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I think what you pointed out is that whatever we would do back to them would be visible and reversible. Um, and obviously limited impact. And I, I tend to think that if Russia did anything uh, here as a result of, uh, again, the impact of sanctions, the continued lethal aid to Ukrainians, where you know, Russia's obviously feeling some pain, I, I similarly think it would, be, it would be visible, it would be reversible, um, with the clear implication of 
we can do more. Knock it off or we can do more. What I don't have a good sense of, oh, no Russian tech here, is how, what that, how big of an event would they be looking at? And again, if you look back at the Sean Lingus reporting, apparently you know, there tends to be specific concern around uh, potentially oil and natural gas, financial systems, uh, services, and dibs. So I, you know, I would probably look it back over and be thinking about what Cyber Command can do, what their capabilities are, what the intelligence community might be able to do. And, and you know, we have a different value set. So I, I still tend to think that we would leave civilian infrastructure. We would be self-limiting like we've been all along, but we would be self-limiting and, and leave civilian infrastructure off the table. I think we would focus on government or military infrastructure. So I think that would be a pretty, you know, if it's depending on who, who pulls, pulls the trigger on the Russian side, FSB or GRU, assuming we have some sort of insight or some sort of understanding of what their command and control infrastructure is, who their officers are. I think we'd, we'd first, we'd burn down their C2. I think we'd go directly to their leadership, very visible, apparent messaging. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that includes extending an, an olive branch to, to try to pull people out on if there is, in fact, some discontent within the FSB. I, again, I tend to think that's where the response would be. I think we, we want to keep the impact on the, uh, the, the Russian civilians as minimal as possible. Uh, but maybe that's, you know, I'm just being a, an old sap and, and I you know, tend to think by the older rules, the game and maybe the game, the, the rules have changed. I think they have, but we'll find out or hopefully we won't. So thank you again, Chris. Thank you, Emily, for lending him to us for 15 minutes here. Uh, really appreciate it. And go have a great dinner with your wife. Uh, Mike, let's turn it over to you because we've had a really eventful week in particular the last couple of days when it comes to the developments in the war. On Friday, we had a remarkable briefing from the Ministry of Defense in Russia, where they articulated what their actual goals are in this campaign. Uh, my view, as you may agree, is that those are much revised goals from what they may have been initially. But now they're saying, oh, never mind our attacks on Kiev and Sumy and Chernihiv and Kherson in the south and attempts to take Mikolaev. That was all a feint. What we really wanted was just to take Donbass and to expand DNR and LNR, the statelet, uh, statelets that we've created back in 2014 to their original borders um, of, of the regions that they had before 2014 uh, when they were part of Ukraine. And that's all that we really wanted to do. And then we had uh, today President Putin and his address to the Roskvardia on National Guards Day um, say that... Uh, uh, the troops of Resguardia are doing a special operation, not in Ukraine, but in the Donbass. So clearly we, we have a, uh, an attempt to find a path to some sort of declaration of victory that is still achievable on their side and, um, uh, you know, uh, a scaling back of their, of their original goals. First of all, do you agree with that? And do you think they will be successful in that attempt to scale everything back? Because... I think there's a lot of puzzlement in Russia right now when the initial goals that they've declared of demilitarizing Ukraine, denazifying it, Ukraine, and suddenly you're going to be content with destroyed uh, Mariupol and slightly larger DNR and LNR. Is that really going to be sold as a victory to the Russian public? Thanks, Dmitry. Well, I think you probably remember a week ago, I sort of theorized that 
they were going to stall out on two two out of the three fronts in uh, the north around Kiev and then the southwest around Nikolaev, and that the only thing they had left to salvage was potentially an encirclement of Ukrainian forces in the joint force operation around the Donbass. And that's what they were attempting to do from the looks of it. That's where they were focusing. Uh, I'm not surprised at all by the MOD announcement. I think we're probably reading it a little bit too optimistically, saying that that's what it is, whereas most likely they're creating options for themselves in order to uh, construct a narrative that this operation was solely about the Donbass, which is essentially what they said, because that's likely the one area that they can potentially still make gains and walk away salvaging something from this operation, um, given the way things are going for them on the ground militarily. But it's not clear that they've necessarily decided what they want to do. For example, it's a debate on the sort of the coast of Sea of Azov. What will they do with uh, Kherson Oblast and part of Zaporizhia that they've occupied? Are those going to be trading ships? Will they potentially consider setting them up as republics and claiming this territory, partitioning Ukraine? You know, my view of it is that Russian forces predictably became exhausted and combat ineffective as of about a week ago. Right. That I think that was anticipated. They don't have much in the way of offensive potential on most of these fronts. Ukraine has taken the advantage for to pursue some counterattacks because they can see Russian units digging in. I think it's smart of them probably to pursue a counterattack where they can um, in the coming days, because any attempt to regain uh, lost territory could could be much harder and more costly in the future, if Russian forces are able to fortify their positions. But yeah, I definitely think you see a revision of Russia's narrative overall, right? They're trying to give themselves an out. And I think the next four weeks or so, kind of um, uh, timeline-wise, I don't want to put a specific marker there, but let's say this month, there are big political calls that the Russian leadership has to make about the future of this war. And I think we're going to find out more what kind of war this is going to be in the coming month. So we're starting to get some signals that they may want to end this operation by May 9th. Of course, May 9th is uh, Victory Day, one of the holiest, if you will, holidays in Russia, celebrating the victory in World War II, um, and a unifying holiday for all Russians. And uh, since Putin has called this a denazification operation, he may want to try uh, to tie himself to the uh, World War II victory over the not- real Nazis um, and declare that he has done this once again in Russian history. But do you, do you think that even with all the propaganda that the Russian public is exposed to on television, that they will buy that all of this pain that they're now suffering economically and diplomatic isolation of Russia and so forth is worth it for just the Donbass region? I mean, honestly, I don't know. I'm sure some people will buy it. I can imagine the way they're going to spin it, potentially, if they want an out later this month. They'll say that by taking Mariupol, they destroyed the base of the Azov Regiment, which always gets trotted out in the Russian media, and say that they succeed in denazification that way. And by striking Ukrainian military infrastructure and going uh, after the defense industrial complex across the country, they'll claim that they also succeeded in demilitarizing or defanging Ukraine. And uh, and then essentially maybe calling it there. That's probably the narrative they're going to go with. 
But the big decisions to me are not about the May 9th parade. Okay, that might be an interesting marker. Um, to me, the question is, what are they going to do in the coming weeks regarding conscript rotation? And are they going to conduct a national mobilization? Because the bulk of Russian military power in terms of the ground forces are in this fight. Uh, the fresh draft of conscripts comes in April 1st. They have to decide whether or not they're going to release conscripts that are currently in service or if they're going to activate a stop loss policy basically this month and hold on to those conscripts, which I think they will have to do if this war is going to drag on. Then after that, they're really going to have to go through a national mobilization if they want to find more manpower. And that manpower is not going to show up on the battlefield for probably several months afterwards, certainly not the new conscripts. Um, so they're going to have big challenges sustaining this war. That's why I'm saying they're going to have to make a decision as to whether or not there's going to be a prolonged war of attrition or if they're going to try to salvage what they can uh, from this unsuccessful military operation and then try to bow out and spin a victory narrative by the end of April. So do you, do you think really, really they're uh, running out of troops because, you know, they seem to have a constant flow of Chechens coming in from Kadyrov. Uh, they, they still have troops in Tajikistan and Armenia, the so-called peacekeepers there that they could potentially bring in. You don't think that's enough? Uh, that is a pretty small amount relative to the casualties they've taken. I mean, let's, let's be honest. They're probably about somewhere between 120 and 130 BTGs into this war already. They don't have a lot more left in the standing force to throw in, let's say another 15, 20 battalions they could throw in there. Then after that, um, you know, there there are big challenges for them. So they could scrape together some more forces. But look, after about a month worth of fighting, the Russian military's probably lost 25 battalions worth of equipment in this fight. It's pretty significant. Obviously not across the board. You can't kind of like linearly apply it uh, to every part of the force. These fr these fronts and, and fights have been fairly uneven in terms of impact on individual units. But nonetheless, it's quite significant. So the, the long story short is that the Russian military has considerable mobilization potential. It has a lot of equipment. They have access to manpower if they want to go that route. But it is a very significant political decision. That manpower, those units will not show up until months from now if they choose to go that route. And, of course, none of it will be as good as the units they've already lost because they've lost a lot of the best Russian units and the most elite infantry early on in this war. And of course, if they mobilize and call up conscripts, not only will that be incredibly politically fraught, probably uh, the most politically fraught decision Putin has taken in his presidency, but you also have to train these people. You can't just give them a rifle and, and send them into Ukraine. Um, and presumably that training will take many months uh, for them to be at all effective, right? So, yeah, and if I can interject, the challenge with doing that is that then I definitely don't believe that they will be able to spin this as a war just for the Donbass and, you know, Kherson. I just, I'm not buying that story. So that is the direction in which they go. This is going to be a much more existential conflict that uh, will have more maximalist war aims. Yeah. So, so let, let's talk about the other part of, of Ukraine right now, because I'm curious, they made the announcement on Friday morning have you seen any pullback of forces from Kiev, from Chernihiv, from that western region yet, uh, which would make sense if, if, if that was just a feint and, and you were really advertising that Donbass is what you want and perhaps you try to move those areas, uh, those forces 
into that area. Uh, one, are you seeing that? And two, um, do you think that that is something that they can execute, given that they are taking a lot of hits from Ukrainian forces right now? There's a number of counterattacks in those areas. Can they actually withdraw without losing uh, a lot of people uh, and sort of in a somewhat order, orderly fa- fashion? So I'm not really seeing them withdraw. The Ukrainian counterattacks are pushing them back, both around Kiev and a couple other places. Um, Mikolaev Oblast is now completely clear. They've, they've pushed Russian forces back to Kherson. And you've seen Ukrainian counterattacks around Sumy and uh, around Kharkiv region, not far from Azum. But that said, okay, there's a bit of a catch-22 for the Russian military when, when we look at this from a strategy perspective, which is they cannot suddenly withdraw for two reasons. First, Militarily, it will be problematic. They will then free up Ukrainian units to come down southeast and reinforce their positions in the Donbass, right? And Russian forces are trying to encircle those units. They're trying to turn the fight around Kiev and the fight down southwest into fronts where they're essentially pinning or, let's say, fixing Ukrainian units there so they can't come reinforce other positions. The second one is political. If they withdraw, Ukraine will declare a major victory over Russian forces, and it will be a huge boost for Ukrainian morale and resolve. And I don't think they want to do that either. So my guess is that they will give up territory, try to consolidate positions, try to consolidate supply lines and logistics, probably retreat from Kiev somewhat while still uh, keeping the city in danger, right? Or at least retaining the ability to pressure it and then maintain those positions as long as they're fighting in the eastern part of the country. That's just one hypothesis. Got it. And what about the involvement of Donbass? You know, let's say, you know, Mariupol is obviously in a very, very tough position right now. They've taken most of that city already and and really destroyed it. Uh, Probably 80 percent of the infrastructure in the city is now decimated. Uh, But if it does fall ultimately and become sort of Ukraine Alamo, they'll free up those forces that have been um, used for the attack on Mariupol to try to do pincer maneuver up north um, and come down from Azum and envelop those Donbass forces. The Russians claim that the, the Ukrainians have about 50,000 forces in Donbass. Do you think the Russians can pull off such a pincer maneuver, given the problems that they've had with, logis- with logistics? These are not insubstantial distances, obviously, and you have significant Ukrainian forces there. Do you think it's actually doable? I mean, that's a hard question, Mitri. You know, I always give disappointing answers, such as it depends and war is highly contingent, right? So, uh, I think the honest answer is that if they take Mariupol, they will be able to free logistics for that uh, fight and much better supply the forces pushing up from Mediatopol and the southern end of this pincer movement. They're attempting a double envelopment. The distances between this double envelopment are pretty significant. I don't think they would be able to complete it in its entirety, but I think they definitely could put Ukrainian forces in a precarious position. I have to caveat that by saying... I don't know necessarily what the combat effectiveness is of Russian units around the Zoom or around the southern part of Ukraine, where where you see that axis coming up from Yatopol. And second, I, I have even less knowledge or, or a notion about what the state of Ukrainian forces in the Donbass, um, what their combat effectiveness is, how well supplied they are, and what their potential is to sustain this fight or to conduct any counteroffensives either. And, and we just have to be, I think, frank about that, that we have some idea about the state of Russian units, but it's very imperfect and incomplete. And the ranges are pretty far in terms of casualties and whatnot. And we have far, even less idea about the state of Ukrainian forces.
Yeah. And the Ukrainian forces, of course, are, are pretty dug in in that area. They've been fighting there since 2014, lots of trenches, lots of underground positions. So it won't be an easy fight to try to dislodge them. What, what, what about counterattacks, uh, Mike? Um, you mentioned that the Ukrainian forces have been able to push the Russians back near Kiev, near Mykolaiv. Uh, do you think they can sustain that uh, and actually push them further out, perhaps back to Ch- Chernobyl um, from, from the Kiev region, push them away from uh, Kharkiv and, and, and Sumy? Uh, the cities in the north. Um, what, what do you what do you make of the, the the ability of the Ukrainian forces right now to do that? I mean, I think they can incrementally make gains and retake lost territory. Russian units are stretched pretty thin around Kharkiv and Sumy, for one, and and there, uh, I think there's advantages for Ukrainian forces. Plus, a lot of those units have, have been mauled over the past several weeks of fighting. Uh, northeast of Kiev, there are issues for Russian forces because there's just a paucity of forces. There, there's low density. They're stretched pretty thin there as well. And they're pretty extended in terms of logistics supply lines. So you could see, saw them retreat several dozen kilometers back from Bavari after a Ukrainian counterattack. Although at some point, those lines are going to consolidate. And then west of Kiev, uh, if you look kind of at the positions Russian forces were taking, a, a bunch around the city, you know, Irpin, Bucha, and, and um, Hostomel, but then also an outer ring kind of facing outwards around Makariev and, and Borodyanka and the like. So there, Ukrainian forces have made some gains at that outer ring, pushing in from the uh, west-northwest and, and crimping Russian positions. I, I, it's hard to say exactly what's happening there because, you know, it's always difficult to reconcile claims. But it looks like Ukrainians are having some success with, with raids against Russian forces. That said, you know, I can see the imperative of counterattacking now. While Russian units have lost the momentum, they're in an operational pause. They need to reorganize, replace losses, and it's best to attack them before they dig in. That makes sense. On the other hand, you know, I'm not sure how well Ukraine can sustain a counteroffensive because that means probably leaving urban terrain, right, which strongly favors the defender, Coming out in the open, engaging Russian units, you can do it where the correlation of forces favors you. But on the whole, I think Ukrainian forces also have to be cautious. They have to preserve their own equipment, manpower. And you can tell a little bit, at least, and I don't like reading tea leaves, but you can tell from Zelensky's requests that they need they need equipment. They need more equipment to go on the counteroffensive, right? I suspect that their losses of equipment as a share of the overall force, which is quite smaller than that, of, of the Russian army are not insignificant. Yeah. And, you know, clearing Makarev is also very important for them because it helps them to resupply Kiev uh, and clears up that major highway that, that goes from um, through Zhitomyr and, and, and into Western Ukraine. Um, what about the Hostomel airport, the, the, the famous airport that near Kiev that was uh, taken by the VDV, by the Russian airborne, in the initial hours of the war, they were thrown out of there. Then they drove through from Chernobyl and took it back. And they've been pretty dug in there. Have you seen them actually using that airport strategically? Do you think they're getting resupplied uh, through, uh, from the air on, into that airport? Or is that just an, another defensive position uh, for their ground forces? No, I, I don't think so. I think um, Russian units have, used, have been using airports often as bases and staging areas pretty consistently throughout this conflict. 
it, it kind of makes sense in some ways logistically, but uh, I've not seen them use the airport for substantial resupply. You know, air operations around there would be hard because there's still air defense functioning around the Ukrainian capital, right? And there's uh, a plethora of man pads on this battlefield as well. So it would be pretty, pretty dangerous uh, to do. Yeah. And of course, uh, we had Slovakia offering the S-300 system that it had back from the Soviet days. It said that uh, it would provide that system to Ukraine as soon as it got a replacement. Well, last week it did get a replacement that is now operational, Patriot batteries that were driven from Germany. Uh, so presumably that system is on the way to Ukraine or maybe is already operational there. Um, and of course, Ukrainians have had their own um, S-300s and, and other air defense systems that they could have used. Um, one thing I'm, I'm curious, Mike, is if you sort of take them at their word that they are now trying to find a path to victory here uh, with Donbass, the big question is going to be what to do with the southern areas, right? Because uh, Mariupol, you know, makes sense. It, it, it was originally part of the Donetsk uh, region uh, before 2014, so they can give it to the DNR. Um, and say this is this is yours, uh, rightfully so, based on pre-war borders. Um, but they've taken a lot of other areas of, along the, that Azov Sea coast, the so-called land, to, uh, land bridge to Crimea. They've taken the Kherson region, um, which um, uh, they they still control. And the question in my mind is: Do you think they they intend to keep it and potentially annex it to Crimea uh, to keep? to keep that land bridge um, and, and, and the strategic um, more, more of the strategic coast along the Azov and, and the Black Sea region? Or do you think they'll pull back? And, and if, if they decide to keep it, do you think they can actually handle it? Uh, we haven't seen, obviously, an insurgency just yet, but there's a lot of Ukrainians in that area still that presumably are pretty anti-Russian and the Ukrainian uh, government can easily flood more weapons, more, more javelins, more RPGs into that area to cause Russians a lot of pain. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I suspect that when it comes to Donbass, they they might outright annex the territory one way or another. But when it comes to this uh, southern region that, yes, people refer to as a land bridge, although I'll be frank, I'm not a huge fan of that term. um, That remains very much in question. So not seen great evidence of the fact that they actually intend to turn these into new people's republics, right? There's not a lot of public organization there. They've removed mayors, Ukrainian mayors, and they, they seem to be kidnapping people and shipping them somewhere, unclear where. But when it comes to um, giving air to pro-Russian forces, political activists and the like, not seeing a lot of that, which leads me to suspect that as in other cases, they haven't actually decided yet what they want to do. I think their first best strategy is to use these as trading ships, right? To maybe annex the Donbass, then try to trade these bits of territory back to Ukraine in exchange for a political settlement where they attain uh, some more of the national level demands, right? Like neutrality and whatnot. That, that strikes uh, me as a pipe dream, though, Mike, because after the heroic defense of, of Mariupol, uh, Zelensky this week uh, instituted a hero status to that city. I mean, I just don't see him ever signing a piece of paper that gives it up. Uh, that you know, he would be lynched probably if he ever did that. Um, so I'm not. I'm not sure that uh, they may think that, but I'm not sure it's realistic at all. 
Well, I was going to counter and say, what part of this operation doesn't strike you as a pipe dream starting from the first three days? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Just to be honest, I mean, I mean, once people think that they can get into the Ukrainian capital and force a surrender within 72 hours, um, there's definitely pipe dream territory in terms of planning. Yeah. So no, I, I, let's put it if it's a pipe dream, it would be consistent with the other things I've seen so far in this war from the Russian side. Uh but speaking realistically, I think most likely it might end up being a prolonged occupation, right? And they'll come up with some local framework, but it will be costly. I mean, that's hundreds of kilometers worth of new borders. Um, Kherson is not on the southern side of the river, right? The city. It's, it's on the northern side of, or, or let's say the western side of the Dnieper River. So you don't have a natural boundary there. They'd have to be defended. They'd have to defend it from uh, Nikolaev. And it will create a pretty large front for them to have to occupy, for them to have to defend a sizable population around that area, not not even including Donbass. It, it would be it would be challenging, I think, for them. And you're not going to get some stable borders there. And, and we're already seeing some of that, right? So Chernobyevka, which is this suburb of Kherson, uh, is famous because the Ukrainians have shelled it on several occasions, destroyed a lot of the aircraft and famously killed the commander of the 49th Combined Arms Army uh, in that region. And in fact, uh, Zelensky in, in his address uh, the other day, uh, talking about how Defense Minister Shoigu in Russia has been sort of disappeared, if you will, for the last couple of weeks, although he has now reappeared. But Zelensky said, you know, maybe he was visiting Chernobyevka, uh, and that's why he hasn't been seen for, for some time. Uh, you know, g- given the Ukrainians' ability to, to hit it with artillery, and given that it's just on the outskirts of Kherson, that probably doesn't bode well for them uh, in terms of ability to keep it without, without a lot of losses, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that it, it would require a sustained occupation, and then Kherson would can, can end up being the, the, Nets, the next Donetsk. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the impact of this on Russia, because I did a, th- a thread on this a few days ago where, um, or actually yesterday, where I talked about these um, reduced goals that they've now proclaimed, that Putin has reaffirmed today, uh, of of Donbass, quote-unquote, liberation of the Donbass. And if you look at the costs that they've suffered, obviously a huge economic cost, huge diplomatic costs that will be decimating Russian economy for decades, uh, potentially, if, if if they don't get under, from under those sanctions. But also, I think most importantly, the prestige that Russia has suffered uh, due to its pitiful performance, uh, military performance in this war, right? And, and you're starting to see some really hawkish elements on Russian television talking about how, uh, you know, pushing back on this notion that we can just take down Boston and be happy with it. Because, you know, I saw one commentator on, on TV on Vladimir Solovyov's program on Channel One Russian television Solovyov, of course, the famous propagandist, uh, Putin's propagandist. And this person was saying, you know, if you can't handle Ukraine, how can you claim credibly to threaten NATO, to threaten the United States? You're a laughingstock. Uh, you, you couldn't even deal with Zelensky. How can you deal with uh, with uh, Biden or Schultz or, or Macron? And, uh, you know, I, I wanted you, uh, you to address that because, uh, you know, <laughs> Russia has become a laughingstock the famous memes about Ukrainian tractors, carting away equipment, uh, the challenges that they're having across most of the axes uh, of advance here. 
that's a pretty big psychological impact that they must be feeling. And even though information is not getting through as much as it has before to the Russian public, they're still on Telegram. They can still get on VPNs and, and find this out. Uh, can you comment on that, the, the, the psychological impact on Russia from uh, even if they manage to pull off this quote-unquote victory with just taking Donbass? So I think there's actually two conversations there, Dmitry. The first one is regarding some of the sentiments you heard on that program. And I, and I watched it too, actually. And I thought that the person speaking there about how this would be re- a very visible defeat for Russia. How could Russia claim to uh, take on NATO or anybody else if, if they lose so visibly in Ukraine? Essentially, it looked like the reaction from the commentators there to the proposition that Russia could accept anything other than the maximalist victory in Ukraine. That, to me, is an interesting conversation about the, what the political mindset and sentiments might be in Russia because of what the Kremlin has unleashed, right? When it comes to political mobilization, once you unleash it, it's going to be very hard to then start and spin a narrative about how this was just this just about the Donbass. People will realize that it's a defeat and it will have consequences for the regime. That's very obvious. So I think, um, I think that's one conversation about how all these various individuals within the system and also the general public are likely to interpret uh, something less than a clear victory, which is most likely what they'll have to accept, because I don't really see how Russia can politically win this war. Now, the second conversation is about perceptions of Russia in international community. So there's two things there. First, yeah, Russian performance military-wise is pretty embarrassing. We can see that. And they've not done uh, nearly as well as a lot of people had estimated early on. I think the military analysis community to which I belong had somewhat overestimated Russian military capability and underestimated Ukraine military capability. I have a long thread on that from a couple of weeks ago. I will say that um, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, military power always needs a context to express itself. You can't measure it the way you do accounting. So military power in the abstract is just not a thing. Uh, so, you know, how Russia does in Ukraine tells us some things about how Russian military would perform and the problems they have with the fundamentals in other contingencies. But it doesn't tell us nearly as much as people think. But that said, yeah, you're right. There's uh, real uh, dismissiveness of Russian military power that I think we're going to be dealing with moving forward. And you know, in my community, at least, we've, we've for a long time now dealt with two narratives. Either Russia's 12 foot tall or it's four foot tall. And the truth has always been somewhere in between. And this is going to be another probably significant overcorrection into the Russia four foot tall category where I can already see I'm going to spend years probably having talk about how the Russian military did poorly in Ukraine. But, you know, that's that's a snapshot of what happened in this particular war. You know, I was talking to General Petraeus the other day, who, who does listen to this podcast and is a big fan of, of your analysis, Mike. And he said, you know, given their performance in Ukraine right now, he's not sure that they're even four foot tall at this point. Uh, given, oh, really? Given, given the, the disastrous impact and you know the loss of general officers and so forth Let, let's talk well, hold on Nitri, Nitri. let me ask can you can you ask general petraeus next time what we should take away from u.s performance and success in afghanistan and iraq oh, oh come on come on uh, <laughs> i'm being asked about about how we actually assess military power performance and context right because the way you assess let's say likelihood of chinese military success in a taiwan strait scenario is very different from the way you assess a China-India war, right? So there's some things that really matter in terms of context. 
So a lot of things are generalizable, but not all. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about weapon systems. So a lot has been made of the switchblades drones, the self-destruct destruct, uh, kamikaze drones that we're now providing to the Ukrainians. Um, what, what do you think is the impact of that? Uh, obviously very cheap to use, easy to use. They crash into, uh, you know, Ukrainian, uh, I mean, a Russian uh, vehicle and, and, and detonate on impact. If we're able to flood a lot of those drones into Ukraine, do you think it's going to make a huge difference? I mean, like any tactical system, I'm sure it'll make an impact. At the end of the day, it's up to Ukrainians to make use of an aggregate to success, and I think they've done a pretty good job. I'm surprised it's actually taken us a while to get into the drone conversation. I thought that we spent quite a bit of time talking about MiG-29s, which didn't make nearly as much sense to me as discussing the subject of providing uh, Soviet-gen air defense systems that other countries had, various remotely operated systems that either we or other allies and partners had that we probably could have gotten into this uh, into this conflict a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is there's a lot of conversation now, and some of it is even making it to the Pentagon, uh, about tanks and how useful tanks may be in future conflicts, given the success of anti-tank uh, systems like Javelins and MLAWs on the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, I know you have an opinion on this, so, so I, I thought it would be useful to, to get it out there publicly. You, you do believe that tanks still have a place on future battlefields, right? Yeah, and just to be clear, I, I don't own special stock in any tank-making companies, okay? But last <laughs> time enough. last time I had to deal with this conversation was in the Nagorno-Karabakh War of 2020, where, again, the same crew of folks came out and said, I think that the tank is sort of like the knight on the battlefield is dead. And here's the truth. Um, tanks have always been vulnerable. They've never been invulnerable. Two, uh, if you have a vehicle that has a better combination of firepower, mobility, and protection, I would love to see it. Three, if you'd like to assault on something other than a tank, I'd love to see what that is, because that, that vehicle has particular missions, right? So if you think something does a better mission set than, than a tank, if you like to go maybe in urban warfare with a support vehicle that you think does better, okay, great. I'd like to see it. And last but not least, you know, the tank is vulnerable, but it is at least pretty well protected against a lot of the capabilities out there on the battlefield. Everything else is less protected. So... I'm not sure why anyone believes that, you know, you'd be better off in some lightly skinned uh, armored combat vehicle relative to a tank. And maybe it's a cost conversation for some militaries. I totally get that. And it can definitely be a force structure decision for some services like the Marine Corps. I also get where they're coming from with their force structure reforms. But I don't buy the story that the tank is done in the battlefield just because Russia's lost a lot of tanks in this war or, you know, the Armenians lost a lot of tanks in the Zeris and in their war. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Tanks perform a, an important role, and I've yet to see a counter-argument as to what you would put there. The bigger issue is, all right, there's a lot of countries, including our own, they're very far behind on active protection systems for tanks, generations behind relative to the lethality of infantry-carried weapons, and tanks need to be properly supported. And there's a lot of militaries that fuel tanks, but they don't have the, the effective support for them. You know, for example protection against uh, drones or various remotely operated systems. Got it. Let's, let's, let's buy better tanks, but let's not get rid of them. Uh, that's fair. So you mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh, and we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about that because it seems that the Azeris took advantage of everyone's attention on Ukraine right now, and they launched an offensive in the Nagorno-Karabakh against Armenian forces. 
Um, what do you make of that? It appears that they're pulling back now. Do you think that this is a resumption of conflict there? Um, or was that just a tactical attempt uh, at, at taking some gains? You know, my best guess, and I have to be frank, that I'm not tracking that nearly as well because I'm sort of being consumed attention-wise by this war, uh, is that they're likely probing to see what the Russian and Armenian reaction would be and if uh, to gauge whether or not they have an opportunity right now uh, to potentially gain more territory or maybe push Armenians out of the region while they know that the bulk of Russian military power is preoccupied in Ukraine and not doing very well. Yeah, and it seems like they've been slapped for that and uh, they're now pulling back, at least according to the reports. Mike, last question. Um, what are you looking at next? Uh, what do you expect to see happening over the next couple of weeks here as this war evolves? I mean, I think the big question for me is whether or not the Russian military will demonstrate that they are prioritizing the Donbass, in which case we are going to see a shift in their forces. And if they're going to try this sort of last big push, I mean, there's there's an argument to be made that the Russian forces in Ukraine maybe have one set of offensives in them, right? And if they're going to concentrate somewhere, it will be the Donbass. Um, I'm also going to look to see where Ukrainian military is able to make gains and counterattacks. I mean, they've they've certainly taken advantage of the loss of Russian momentum, but see if they can actually sustain counterattacks or not, or if these are going to be very sporadic and incremental. And then, you know, the third point would be to look for political signals from Russian leadership themselves about what direction they're going to take in this war. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, has been trying to figure out what does Vladimir Putin actually know and think about this war, right? Because you can easily mirror image, but there's, there isn't clear evidence that he, one, understands the battlefield reality as it is, two, that the Russian military is actually telling him the real state of their forces and the prospect for success, three, appreciates the limits of what uh, any additional military means put into this war could possibly achieve in terms of political aims, right? So it's not clear what his reality looks like if he appreciates the true state of uh, of the Russian military situation on the ground, and that's what's going to shape his decision-making, right? Not sort of our objective attempt to analyze the situation. You know, that is a very fair point, and I've made that point before that we shouldn't be mirror image, but I'll tell you, I was actually a little bit impressed with Putin, um, you know, in the last two days, having realized um, that the takeover of Ukraine is not achievable and pulling back and trying to redefine victory. We're only a month in into this war. I mean, you know, if you want to make the comparison with Afghanistan, it took us 20 years to realize we're losing and to make the decision, the hard decision to to pull out. Uh, here he is a month in publicly uh, redefining the objectives. Of course, they're claiming that these have always been objectives, but no one seriously is, is really buying that. Uh, but that, that actually did impress me that um, it, it tells me that he's not disconnected from reality and he's appreciating what is achievable and what is not. Yeah, do you agree with me on this? Um, I'll, 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 I'll split the point with you, which is to say that if that was true, he would not have attempted this war in the first place as a banal quick regime change operation where he honestly thought they were going to roll Ukraine and not face much resistance in a few days. So. Um, I'll, I'll say that uh, maybe maybe we're now seeing inklings of him realizing the the reality on the ground, but I'm not quite so sanguine yet. And, and as always, I'll say that 
it's a lot easier for someone like Putin in a personal authoritarian system to revise the political objectives barely a few weeks into a war and then start putting out a narrative that, oh, it was just about the Donbass in the first place, right? That's one of the big advantages of that system for an authoritarian leader. Sure. It's, it's easier, but it's not easy, as we're seeing with the pushback that he's getting even from his uh, core propagandists and television that want to keep pushing and, and take, taking all of Ukraine. Um, and I'll say this. I, I completely agree with you. He massively miscalculated on the Ukrainian resistance, on ability to take Kiev, on economic sanctions, no doubt. Uh, but it seems like he's realizing that he's miscalculated and he's realizing what may or may not be achievable. But that remains to be seen. Um, well, another great conversation. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Chris, for joining us, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, always insightful. And Mike, you've been right in terms of predictions of how this war would unfold uh, pretty much since day one. So always uh, recommend everyone listen to you for wh what's to come. Uh, because uh, you, you have a very keen understanding of the Russian military and what's taking place on the ground, unlike pretty much anyone else in this field. Um, so again, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a great uh, um, uh, rest of your weekend, and uh, hopefully we'll see, see each other soon again. Thank you. Thanks a lot.